Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. What's cracking? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fat Man McDuffie, and this episode is being brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Pretty good show tonight. We are going to have, every show is a good show, actually. We're going to have Kelsey Miller on, and her book is called Big Girl, How I Gave Up Dieting and Got a Life. Really excited to have her on. I finished the book up. Last night, really late last night, really good book. Um, If you are looking for something to read that's educational as well as entertaining, then I would advise you to go and pick this book up. Again, it's Kelsey Miller, Big Girl, How I Gave Up Dieting and Got a Life, which we'll be discussing tonight. While I'm waiting for Kelsey to come on, um, just want to give you a few announcements from uh, last week. We Last week, we had a really good show again with Dr. Maggie Luther. We were talking a little bit about adrenal fatigue. It's the everything guide to adrenal fatigue. If you are one of those people who are tired and have no idea why you're tired, you're probably suffering from adrenal fatigue, and that was a good show to uh, kind of give you some education on what you might want to do if you are suffering from this condition. It's a related, connected to a lot of different conditions. So um, really good show to go check out uh, if you have not listened to that particular episode. And then I believe on Monday of last week, we had the show with Dr. Jennifer Daniels where we were uh, speaking about um, turpentine turpentine and sugar. So um, I'm actually getting ready to do that protocol. I'm going to be documenting on YouTube. And there's some things that you need to do in order before you actually get started with the protocol. So I'm going to be documenting that on just getting myself ready to actually do the turpentine and sugar. If you're familiar with something uh, with candida or yeast and fungus, you know that when you do start doing these types of things, you may have die-off symptoms and you have to prepare yourself. And I believe on her Candida Cleaner report, she talked about being just making sure that you're hydrated and making sure of some other things before you actually begin the protocol. So I'm going to be documenting that on YouTube. Now, um, if you have not joined me on YouTube, my YouTube handle is FatBodyBC. And I have a lot of videos there. I've been shooting a lot of street videos lately on how to manifest the things that you de- you desire. I'm really big on that. And um, like I said, I've been shooting some videos on that. And then um, also, please connect with me on the Facebook fan page. It's facebook.com slash perfectly healthy and tone radio. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at the fat underscore man. And if you can, those of you who are listening to this episode, I would really ask you to do me a huge favor. And that is go and rank the show in iTunes or leave a review in iTunes. If you're listening to this on iTunes, it really helped me get up there and the uh, iTunes will start showcasing my show. I really want more people to hear it. So if you're enjoying the show, even if you're not enjoying the show and there's something that I can improve on, leave a review. It actually helps out. So, again, um, 
would like to get the show out into more ears, so to speak. So if you can help me and go to uh, iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. So let me read uh, Kelsey's bio. I see her in the switchboard. Um, I have it here. At 29, Kelsey Miller had done it all, crash diets, healthy diets, and nutritionist-prescribed eating plans, which are diets that you pay more money for. She'd been fighting her unthin body since early childhood, and after a lifetime of failure, finally hit bottom. No diet could transform her body or her life. There was no shortcut to skinny salvation. She dug herself into this hole, and now it was time to climb out of it. With the help of an intuitive eating coach and fitness professionals, she learned how to eat based on her body's instincts and exercise sustainability, obsessing over calories burned and thighs gapped. But with each thrilling step toward a healthy future, she had to contend with the painful truths of her past. Kelsey Miller, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Good. Thanks you for being here. I I really enjoyed the book. I actually finished um finished it up really late last night. But it was one of those books. It's a little different from what I'm used to reading, which was good. Mm-hmm. It was also very humorous, so it kind of kept me on my my toes. So I really enjoyed the book, and I would, like I said before you you came on, I would really advise anyone who's looking for something that's educational as well as entertaining to go out and pick up the book. So I'm really excited to have you on tonight. Thanks so much. I love I love hearing about people staying up late with the book. You know, that's the best way to read, I think. Yeah, it's like I said, it's a very humorous book. But um, getting into your story, I actually wanted to start with your childhood. Sure. And um, the, the first question is, when did you start noticing that you were, you know, a bit overweight? I mean, I think that as long as I had been aware of having a body, I had believed, you know, that, that my body was a problem to be fixed. And I was, I was aware, um, you know, that there was like a, you know, food was related to that somehow. So I, I don't think I ever, I mean, I know that there was a time in my life when I felt like, you know, I didn't have self-consciousness in everything, but I think as soon as I became, you know, able to make memories and function, you know, I, I, I think that that, that was an issue for me. Yeah. And your parents, your your mother and your father were actually not together. When did do you remember what age that they they broke up? Yeah, I was 2. So I don't remember the actual event, but um I was 2. Okay. Do you uh, it seems like to me from reading a book that you got some fallout from that. Like there that somehow it affected you. Maybe you were too young but at some point, it, it really affected you emotionally that your mother and your father were actually not together. Am I correct by by saying that? You know, I I don't think that because I don't. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did on some level, right? Because that's just that's just what happens, right? When when people get divorced, even if you are two years old and you don't have like the ability to remember it. Um, but I don't have any conscious memory of my parents ever being together. So I was very aware. I, I mean, I had always just a sense of them always being apart. I mean, that that was how it always was. I was just somebody with divorced parents. And I I think most of the uh, anguish that came from their divorce uh, was not from the actual, you know, breakup of the union itself, but the fact that they, you know, they had a contentious relationship. They didn't get along. And that, that, that you know, caused that tension definitely was difficult for me, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you're not the only child. You have a, uh, you have, 
other siblings, correct? I do, yes. Um, my mother remarried when I was six, I want to say, yes, six. And um, and my brother and sister were born. Um, they're my half-siblings technically, yeah, but um, they're much younger than I am, yeah. They're seven and nine years younger than I am. Yeah, I hope I'm not probing too deep in your childhood. No, no, it's fine. No, it's totally fine. I mean, I put it out there. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Everything's in the book. I can't believe you were so candid in the book. There were some things I'm like, I can't believe she's sharing this. But there were, I mean, they added to the story. And I was the only one that thought I had this life that was kind of full of peaks and valleys. But your life is full of way more peaks and valleys than I probably would ever have would ever have known. But um, take us through your your mother and your father are not together, mm-hmm. and your father would call you on the phone, and there was a certain thing that you would do. You would go into the closet to talk to your father. Just take us through why you would do that and what would yeah. actually happen when you were doing that. Mm-hmm. So we lived in a small house, my mom and, and stepfather and brother and sister and the babysitter. Um, we we didn't have a lot of privacy, and the pantry uh, next to the kitchen was one of the only few places where you could actually sort of close the door and it wouldn't immediately be opened by somebody. <laughs> uh, so I would go in there and, and have my nightly phone call with my dad. And, of course, I'm standing in the pantry. And the other thing to note is that my mother was um, a chef and then she was a caterer. Mm-hmm. And so there was tons and tons of ingredients all around. And even though in my house, you know, treat foods and stuff like that were sort of hidden away, when you're in the pantry, you know, they weren't really treat foods. They were like ingredients. And there was this giant tub of uh, Nestle Toll House chocolate chips, for example, that uh, was just this massive, like, Costco-sized uh, tub of it. And, and it was sort of out out and totally available and not hidden because it wasn't a treat. It was an ingredient. So I would um, I would take handfuls of those of those chocolate chips and I would just slowly slowly siphon off that entire that entire tub and every time I reached in there I was I was just in constant fear that my mom would open the door and and catch me with my hand um, literally in the jar of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and she did end up catching you one day, correct? She did. She did and and she was really really angry for sure because uh she was she was trying to help. I mean, that's what that's what parents do when when you're struggling or when you see your kids struggling, I think you want to help them out. And I didn't like being a chubby little girl, and so I think that she she really did want to help, you know, help me solve this problem. But, you know, it manifested in this way that was really um, a, a not, not a great dynamic. I think both of us really realized eventually that it was a really unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. 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 Just thinking about that on the um, when I was reading the book, I was like, well, if I was a kid, which I was a kid once, and I knew that those were in there, I probably would have grabbed the same thing. But mm-hmm. I never had, you know, I never had a weight problem until late on in life I gained a probably 30, 40 extra pounds after being an athlete. But I'm just wondering if at that point your mom pointing that out to you that or you being embarrassed, um, was that the first time you became very conscious that you were overweight and that you might be having some sort of a a food addiction or some kind of, uh, I would say, resistance to food where food wasn't your friend? No, I think I I think I understood it. I don't think it was like really verbalized until I maybe brought it up when I was, you know, around maybe 8 years old or something like that. Um, but I was, 
you know, you know, when you go for seconds at the dinner table and there's a look or something like that, or, you know, your parents encourage you to, you know, eat this and not that, you have that sort of indirect uh, sense that, that you're doing something wrong. But in reality, I, I, I don't think I was actually doing anything wrong. And I certainly don't think that I was actually, you know, uh, I wasn't alarmingly overweight. I mean, I, lo- I look at these pictures and I really thought I was I was monstrous at this time. But, you know, I, I really looked like a, a, a totally normal kid. I was just one of those kids that didn't, you know, some kids, they, they grow, they go to puberty and they get kind of gangly. And me, I just got kind of roundish and, um, you know, uh, that that was not that was not acceptable. Um, so that's where sort of the restriction came in was just sort of this this idea that I was was monstrous, and also I had this idea in my head at the same time that I couldn't control myself around food. When when really I think that idea just came from you know not being able to sort of navigate it myself. You know, from this idea that I got probably from signals that I got from my parents and stuff like that, that I was doing something wrong. I, I do think that's the thing that happens sometimes. At a certain degree, you have to, like, tell your kids to eat your vegetables, right? On the other hand, you don't want them to make to make them feel like they're, you know, a better person than they would be had they not eaten those vegetables. Like, you're a good girl if you eat your vegetables and you're a bad girl if you eat, you know, I don't know, cheese. Yeah, a lot of parents do that. It's not necessarily true. I think that that's why sometimes kids have problems with food. We we connotate everything to good or bad, and it's yeah. really not not either. Um, let's talk about your relationship with your mom. After reading your book, I really didn't like your mom. Oh. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm sure the way that you painted the picture, but it just didn't seem like you had a, a really good relationship. I know in the beginning she was trying to help you, But it seemed like she maybe fed the idea to you that, you know, you were helpless. You were um, there wasn't any hope for uh, for you. But um, it just seems as though that she was really not she was a food police and she was there to make you feel bad about yourself. But just talk a little bit about the relationship between you and your mom. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's it's very sad, I think. And. You know, my mom, my mom and I have other issues as well as I get into later in the book that are even more complex. But I think that that happens a lot with with parents where you get into this food police phase. And I really do believe that, you know, I, I, I asked for help when I was a kid because I wanted to be a skinny, cool girl. And she was like, you know, I think she went on, I think she was on board with that. And I think she really wanted to, to do her best. And so she was, you know helping me you know she was keeping the diet foods in the house and she was hiding the junk food and she was you know giving me looks at the dinner dinner table like I said oh excuse me and it really became this like this very not only was sort of food like the enemy but my my mom became kind of an adversary unfortunately and it was like you know when you're a kid all you want is your mom to love you and no matter what, you want to make your mom love you. You want to make your mom like you. You want to be the good girl, and I certainly wanted to. And I think when she placed those parameters uh, around my my eating that sort of dictated whether or not I was good or bad that day, it became really, really hard for me to, I guess, in my mind, get my mom to like me because I felt like I was constantly breaking her rules. And right. and I think yeah I mean that that was really really unfortunate, 
Yeah. Yeah. Your mom and and your dad were both alcoholics. Now, were they like when I think of alcoholics in uh, sort of a literal sense, I think of people who just are constantly drinking. Were Mm. they like constant drinkers, or were they more of the weekend drinkers who who drunk too much and, and went a little over the edge? Well, you know, my dad got sober before I was born. So I have I have no uh concept of him at, uh, the way he was when he when he drank. Um I mean, I hear from other people, but um and my mom, you know, she she was sober for uh, a lot of my childhood. I actually don't know exactly how much, but I know the the the, the time when it got really bad when she was off the wagon and she was having these mental health issues at the same time. Um when I was older, I mean, that was that was very, very obvious. And it was, you know, uh, not unlike me with food in that, you know, she was she was hiding it. She was sneaking it because it's not as if she hadn't been in the program already. You know, this was somebody who had relapsed. And, and I think it's different when you relapse. So um, it was it was a lot sneakier and um, it was it was it was bad. And as I said, you know, when it's combined with with mental illness, those are two very complicated issues that just become exponentially more complicated when they when they come together. Do you think that she might have been so hard on you in the very beginning because of her own shortcomings? Um, I think I honestly think that she was afraid for me. I think both my parents were afraid for me. I think she was Probably she seemed angry about it to a degree, and I think that it definitely was something she wrestled with to a degree. So I can't imagine that that didn't feed into her fear, which then fed into her, you know, treatment of me around food. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, your dad. It just seems like you had a better relationship with your dad. Do you think that was partly because he didn't, he wasn't there all the time, so he kind of wanted to. Dads tend to want to make up for the time when they're not <laughs> with their kids. Do you think that was part of it? I think so. I think so. I mean, he gets, I think, a lot of credit as far as divorced dads go. In in that he, like I said, you know, we talked every day and. We saw each other pretty frequently, um, and I spent long visits with him, and then some days he would drive up from D.C. just to spend the day with me. Um, so he really did endeavor to be in my life um, as much as anybody who didn't you know, live in the same state as me could. Um, so, yeah, I think we did have a better relationship. He's certainly you know, um, a sort of more even keel guy and he was very very doting and loving and i think probably like you said you know he had that divorced dad thing where you're constantly trying to make up for all the parenting that you're not doing on the on the days when you're not with your kid mm-hmm. yeah um where are you right now with your with your mom it sounds like at the near the towards the end of the book it, it never seemed like you got there didn't seem like it was a resolu- resolution. As I was reading mm-hmm. the book, I'm like, there's got to be a resolution. There's got to be know. a resolution. I know. It's and it just didn't seem like there was a res- resolution. So I'm like, i got to ask her that. Where are you with your mom right now? Well, I mean, we are in, in I think, a little bit of limbo. I don't know. I haven't I haven't heard from her since the book came out. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I can see how this could be incredibly hard for her to read. And she might just need to take her time to talk to talk to me. I mean, maybe she doesn't want to get angry at me. She was, you know, we did get to a place where we were communicating 
um, to a degree when I was writing the book. We were seeing each other at my grandfather's place. We were we talked on the phone sometimes at the you know over over that um, year, and and she was supportive and 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 proud of me for writing the book. But I think at the same time we were both terrified of of what would happen after it came out and after she read it. So um, you know. I guess the answer is uh, is limbo at the moment, and and we'll see. I'm just sort of waiting and and watching. Yeah. Yeah, you you put all the trash out on Front Street, Kelsey, because you <laughs> you you held nothing back on this book. There was some things I was like, wow. Like I said, I couldn't believe that um, she said that. Um, getting to going into your puberty years, I would say you're going to a boarding school, mm-hmm. and you are learning so many things and one of these things is that you've been probably on every diet. I wanted to get into some of the diets that you you were on and pretty much all of them failed, but you had the weight watchers, um you had the uh diet everything diet or something like that. Oh, well no, I mean I just, that was just me picking up every single person's like diet yeah. like weight loss tips at boarding school. <laughs> But I did around that time. I did eat right for your type, um, and then after all that, I, I did weight watchers a few different times. Um, I went to a nutritionist who wrote out a, a very restrictive meal plan for me. Um, I did Jenny Craig at one point. I was, I, I mean, if it was new and it sounded good, and I hadn't tried it before and failed on it before, I was on board with it. Yeah. Yeah. What was your experience with um, with Weight Watchers? Well, I actually. The question is more of you tried all of these different diets. What was the one that you seemed to like? I know eventually none of them worked, but what was the one that was might have been easiest for you that you tended to like more? Hmm, that's hard to say because when when I think about the way I liked them, I liked them for you know these totally messed up reasons. I mean, I think I liked Weight Watchers to a degree because it was, you know, points. It was like that was a way of of winning or losing. It was so cut and dried and it made me it was it made it very easy to define whether or not I had a good day or a bad day and therefore whether or not I was a good or a bad person. And so that's what I really liked about Weight Watchers. That's what kept bringing me back to it. And um, you know, I don't think that's a healthy way to like something. <laughs> um, but I certainly I certainly liked that and I liked that structure. I mean, the thing that I always liked about dieting was the structure element because it was just like you don't even have to think about it you just have to do what they tell you to do and you know what your day is supposed to look like and it's measured out in this you know these specific increments and and that's all you have to think about you don't actually have to like listen to your body or think about what you want or think of what might feel good or any of that you just follow the rules yeah i'm sure you're you're a writer now and you're you know writing different articles and i'm sure you're coming across a lot of the different things and one of the things that i discuss on my show since it's more of a health show is the paleo diet gluten-free i'm actually gluten-free i'm sensitive to gluten but um how do you feel about those diets right now i know that you kind of poked at them a little bit in the book but how do you actually feel about those well i think that a lot of them and a lot of the sort of food trends and the sort of language around food that's very on trend is really just another way of restricting for for a lot of people, for a lot, a lot, a lot of people. I mean, I know that there are people who actually do feel good eating paleo and that just like works with their bodies. And, you know, I I don't even consider that necessarily dieting because like there are things that I don't eat because they don't make me feel good. You know what I mean? But... I think a lot of people, you know, 
here, this is a new thing. It sounds good. It sounds like it has like a logic behind it and you want to get behind it. And it's so easy to get invested in there. And you have this vast community of people who are doing it. And you can feel like you're a part of something and you can feel like you're doing something healthy and you've just you joined this new discovery. And, and really it just becomes a way to diet without having to say the word diet. You know, it's not trendy to be like, I'm on a diet now, you know? Yeah, it's a lot of people that are following these diets and it's trendy, it's become trendy, but I was way ahead of the trend. So, <laughs> so Yeah, no, but I mean, that's, that's, that's a different thing. When you get like dogmatic about something and when it becomes like a value system for you and it becomes the kind of thing that dictates the rest of your life, that's a different thing than just saying, I'm not going to eat this because it doesn't make me feel good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you on that. <clears throat> oh, excuse oh. me. Sure. Going back to your, I'm not sure, and I don't remember from the book exactly if this was in your, before you went to boarding school or this was in your, in your adolescence, where where you had you had experience where you were, were, where you were about to be signed by an agent. This was one of the first times where you lost a lot of men that were away. Yeah, um, that was my first, like, I think, official diet, the first time I I thought of myself as on a diet, yeah. Um, And I was, I was, I had the opportunity to audition for um, a talent manager when I was a kid, I was a theater kid, and they really liked me, and they said they would like me to lose 10 pounds in two, and come back and see them in two weeks, and I was like, great, you know, I mean, part of me was also really thrilled because I was always looking for somebody to tell me just like just lose weight just do it to like sort of back hold the guns in my head and I would do it and um that's that's really what happened for me and I I was an A plus student and I lost 30 pounds in two weeks um which is you know not not that hard to do when you're 11 years old and you know somebody is saying you're going to be a Broadway star you know what I mean Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that was my first biggie yeah, and that was a t- pretty heart-wrenching experience because I remember in the book I was like so heartbroken for you because Aww. you you actually went back in and you they didn't sign you at all. Yeah. Talk about talk about that experience and and what yeah. it kind of express your emotions around it because it must have been I mean I wasn't there but I felt like I was right in the room with you when I was oh, reading the book. Oh yeah, it was it was it was hard to write that part. Um, you know, it's hard to write a lot of the parts of that book, but yeah, absolutely I. I went back and I was so skinny and I felt so proud of myself and um, they were, they were so, they gave me so much praise. And then in the end, it all just kind of, you know, the contract thing just kind of fell through. Like, you know, these things happen all the time in that industry, but I had fully, fully believed it was going to happen. I mean, I had really believed it. They, they, and so to have, to have that sort of rug pulled out from under me, um, was devastating. I, I was I was devastated and I was sort of humiliated at the same time because I'd worked so hard and I'd like told all my friends this was going to happen and I'd become sort of like, it, it'd become like a thing in school to talk about and and that just didn't happen. And then of course, I mean, this would have probably happened eventually anyway, but you know, I started to gain the weight back um, because I didn't have any of that incentive anymore and the bubble had just been burst in such a brutal way. Um, and then so on top of that, on top of like not – I didn't get the contract and I didn't keep I, – I wasn't skinny anymore. So it was like every dream just collapsed. And 
you know, as I say in the book, that really became that dragon I chased for the next 20 years because for that brief window when I lost so much weight so fast, it did really feel like every single thing got better and I got so much more attention and everybody liked me. And, you know, eventually the novelty would have worn off anyway. I know that now, but back then it was just like a brutal bubble had burst. Yeah. Yeah. You felt like, I I think in in the book, the way that I interpreted it was that you kind of felt like you were accepted. That you had, you know, with the weight loss, you were finally accepted as one of the cool kids. Yeah, I did. It felt like, you know, everything that had been making me, that had been hard, every sort of hurdle that I had wanted to to, to cross, I, I was able to do so simply by losing a ton of weight really fast. I mean, my mom was super proud of me, and she took me shopping for smaller clothes, and that was just an amazing, wonderful experience. And, and yeah, all the kids noticed. You know, and and I became, you know, I'd been sort of invisible before, and now I was noticed, and I felt like I, you know, become a real girl. It was it was amazing, yeah. Mm-hmm. How much going back to your childhood and getting into when you went to boarding school? Yeah. One of the things I noticed that every time you would talk about eating, it was like you were eating in front of the television. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of your eating was just, just uh, what word am I looking for here? Just blind eating, so to speak. That you're sitting in front mm. of the television, you're just eating unmindful eating. I guess I've made up a word, unmindful. Eating. <laughs> and how much of your eating was just sheer emotional eating? God, I mean, it's hard to quantify because I don't think. I think it was pretty rare for me to get to a place where I was just like, oh, I'm hungry and I know exactly what I want. I mean, it was always, you know, opportunistic. It was like, what what am I allowed to eat in this circumstance? If I'm in the dining hall and there's people around, then I kind of got to eat, you know, this and this and this, and I can't be seen eating this. And then if I was alone in my room, I could eat whatever I wanted. And also that was my opportunity to eat tons and tons and tons because I certainly couldn't eat, you know, say a piece of chocolate in front of anybody else. And uh, sure, when I was away at boarding school, I mean, I was that first that first year especially, I was really stressed and I was really afraid to be away from home and there's so much competition and um I just wanted to hide out. I just wanted to hide out and numb out. So I think there was a lot of that going on um at that point. I think by that point I'd really lost sort of all connection with my my natural ability to sort of feel hunger and fullness and desire food and and know what what I didn't want what I didn't didn't want it was all it was all tied up in feelings and opportunities yeah did you like I know when I went to college and I had all that freedom and <laughs> and yeah. no one to tell me when to go to bed tell me what to do um, I handled it pretty well, but I'm just wondering when you went to boarding school and your parents run around, mm-hmm. did you feel like you handled that well, that the fact that you could eat whatever you wanted and no one was telling you what to eat? Oh, no, I did not handle that well. Um, it was like, <laughs> no, I mean, it was very much like when I was younger, younger, and I would go to my friend's house and, and my friend had like a candy drawer. I would go insane on that candy drawer because it was like, there's that part of your brain that's like, well, when are you ever going to get the opportunity to eat all this candy again? you got to go crazy on that candy drawer. And 
so that would happen whenever I like went on a play date when I was little. And then when I went to boarding school, it was like being away from home at on a play date all the time in terms of food. I mean, like I wasn't having a whole lot of fun right in the beginning, but like in terms of food, that part of my brain just clicked into action. It was like, you got to get it while you can. And, uh, you know, it, it, I, I wasn't, you know, if I'd been paying attention, I would have probably, you know, normalized maybe a little bit and been like, okay, now I understand that nobody's going to take the candy away from me. And so maybe I don't have to, you know, eat it five you know, candy bars at a time, but I, I didn't, I wasn't eating mindfully. I was just hoarding it really. Mm. Yeah. sounds like a lot of kids. <laughs> Cause I yeah. used to do the same thing. Just eat. You just eat. Because I used to eat because I was bored. I would sit in front of the TV. This is when I had gained a lot of weight. I would just sit in front of the TV and eat a, those pound bag of M&Ms, the uh, mm-hmm. peanut M&Ms. Mm-hmm. Those were like my vice. And I would just sit there and eat one after the other, one after the other, one after And I'm like, why am I eating so many M&Ms? But I just figured out that if I sat in front of the TV and I was bored, that was my trigger, that I would always just eat M&Ms. And I, by far, was never really overweight as a mm-hmm. child. I was always skinny. But I just noticed as I got older, my trigger would be boredom. Like, if I'm bored, yeah. I want to eat. So I, I'm sure everybody suffers from that. In some yeah, it's other. stimulus, you know. It's like a ple- it's a pleasant stimulus. Boredom is really uncomfortable for us, I think, as humans. Yeah. So you get out of boarding school, and it just seems like throughout the whole book, Kelsey, that mm-hmm. you were putting your life on hold. Like, for a lot of us, we get out of boarding school, we end up going to college, and we can't look forward to that time enough. It's like we get into dating. No one's telling us what to do. We can pretty much do what we want to. But it just felt like you were putting your whole life on a hole, and that that hole was based upon your weight. How much weight can I lose? Am I ever going to be skinny? Like you weren't weren't ever living. Yep, that's absolutely true. Um, And I don't think I fully realized that until I quit. Um, But I, I did. I didn't think I couldn't I didn't think I was capable or allowed to do things like dating or um you know try things or when I was doing theater I didn't really think I was like allowed to audition for anything or even hope to get a part because I just had this giant you know one big box I had to check off uh which was you know get skinny or or lose whatever amount of pounds I thought would be sort of the magic number and then I would be allowed to live my life and it wasn't like I, I said that consciously to myself with everything, but, you know, it, it's very easy to believe that. It's very easy to believe, like, you shouldn't be allowed to, to date or to be out there in the world um, unless you're a skinny person, you know? Yeah. You had some guys that liked you, and then for some odd <laughs> reason, you, you couldn't deal with the fact that they liked you, but they liked the curves of your body. They were telling you that they liked the curves of your body. Yeah. But for some reason you you just couldn't couldn't handle that uh, why oh i think probably a few a few reasons but mostly just because i felt so deeply ashamed and disgusted by myself and so i thought if a guy liked me whether it was like in college or in you know sixth grade then there must be something very wrong with him and i became instantly repelled by that person um and i really did i really believe there was like something wrong with him because i I knew there was something deeply wrong with me. And so to to think that to to like my body was, um, you know, perverse somehow. Yeah. So that I think that really speaks to my own <laughs> really, really deeply embedded sense of shame. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I was I was reading a book. I'm like, no, Kelsey, don't say that. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really enjoy it because it's a, a an actually a, a depart from what I'm used to use uh, reading because usually I'm used to reading just theory on diets and asking yeah. fate, like last week's show was on adrenal fatigue, so right. you never get a yeah. chance to do these you know human interactions. Um, when did you finally say enough is enough? Um, I hit bottom. I hit like a real deal bottom when I was 29. Uh, and by then I, I had, I was back in, I think my last, my last cycle with Weight Watchers. I was on a trip for work and I was running through the woods doing one of those like warrior workout kind of things. And, you know, exercise can be very cathartic. I don't know if you've experienced that where like emotions come up sort of out of nowhere when you're, when you're working out. Um, but I, I had what felt almost like a panic attack, but it was sort of like a, an epiphany attack, really. I just sort of, I, I, I couldn't keep going. I couldn't keep running. And at the same time, I, I felt like I couldn't keep doing what I was doing in the bigger picture. I was just done. So, so done. I just like run out of the ability to, <laughs> To, to get on board with another diet, I'd run out of steam in terms of like self-hatred even somehow. I just had inadvertently come to the end of that particular line. And I was like, I mean, what am I going to do? What am I going to do now? I was it, it was the thing that had defined my entire life. And um, I, I'd heard about intuitive eating already. You know, I would stumble across it when I was trolling around the internet for my next diet book or something like that. But I, I always ignored it because it sounded like something that you would do once you were already thin, you know, it was like, it sounded like something I should do someday the same way I should probably meditate one day, but you know, I, I should wait till I was thin. But then when I, when I hit this bottom and I needed, I needed a way out, I needed like a new, a path to help me out of the woods. I, I sort of realized that that was, that was probably it. And, um, and it was, it was, it got me out. Yeah. Now, going back to um, before you were 29, I believe this is when you sure. were really fresh out of college and you were working on a set of sex in the city. Oh, that was um, actually right between high school and college. Yes. But I was working okay. in the film industry right after college. Yeah. Okay. And you were given a key to the, I guess, the chocolate closet or something like that. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what was running through your mind and how did you actually end up not just treating that chocolate closet like you treated your neighbor's uh, a chocolate drawer that you just wanted to ravage everything in there? Uh, well, okay, so I just finished high school. I was at maybe my heaviest weight ever. I had I just like come to this reckoning where I was like really, really, really ready for the most severe possible diet I could think of. I was like, this time I'm going to do it. You know, we all have those feelings. And I'd never felt it that more, like more passionately than that. And I went to find, I went to this nutritionist I'd seen, um, or uh, this nutritionist who worked somehow with my doctor. And she prescribed a, or she wrote out a meal plan for me. And it was very restrictive. It had no, you know, it had no sugar in it. It had, you know, I mean, including things like that's where I learned how to be afraid of grapes you know, because she was like, or at all berries too. She was like, you might as well eat a pound of gummy bears and stuff like that. So I became very fearful, fearful of things like fruit and, um, you know, any, any, really any carbohydrate. I mean, it got to the point where like when I was eating snack foods, my snack food was a can of, of tomatoes, which is, you know, 
I think that's actually kind of delicious sometimes, but you don't want to be eating just like cans and cans of whole peeled tomatoes all the day. Um, so I was on this very rigorous meal plan, and I was just so committed to it. And that was when I was working at Sex and the City. And that was when they gave me the keys to the chocolate closet. And it was like this sort of perfect setup in my mind. I think I felt like I am the most aesthetic, you know, uh, least snacking person in the world. And, and being in charge of this chocolate closet is like, it's not even a challenge. It just proves how how controlled I am. You know, my afternoon snack there was supposed to be like a tablespoon of peanut butter. And I would, I would, that was what I would have. And then I would lay out like heaps and heaps of Oreos and candy bars and all kinds of snacks in the afternoon um, for people on the set and, and in the production office. And it, it was sort of funny because I think right around the time I started, that's when they had to lock that closet. That's why there was a key to it that I had because mm-hmm. before that, people were going crazy on it. People were just ravaging it all day long and they were just constantly having to refill it and, and it was becoming very, very expensive to have this particular closet. They locked it and they gave me the key. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I would put whatever was left out away and then it would be all locked up until the next day at like 2 o'clock when I would spread out this like bounty of, of sugar and then go and, and sit with my one tablespoon of peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you did that. You You had some type of willpower. Uh, I can't willpower or like self punishment or just like you know I was really wrapped up in the belief that I was just like on you know another level I was in sort of like an enlightened diet state at that point yeah. Now getting into your adulthood and I'm assuming this sure. is your adulthood because the book kind of goes from childhood and then you kind of maybe jump around a little bit but it seems like you didn't have a mother figure in your life and then this woman named Cal came into your life um, and it seems like you guys had a pretty good relationship and I thought that you had a better relationship with her than you might have had with your mom um, how, describe that relationship and did it actually give you uh, motivation at some point to realize that I need to maybe heal this um, relationship with with my mother I know it's not there yet yeah. but did she serve as your, your mother figure when you kind of needed a mother figure Oh, God, for sure. I mean, I was like so many people who have mom stuff. I was just looking for mothers everywhere. And I was only kind of partially aware of it. But Cal was like, she she was this older, you know, kind of famous director. She was she was like in like this super cool kids club. And I really wanted to be like her. And I was her assistant. And it was just sort of like the mommy issues were baked right in. It was like, it was so easy for me to mommify her. Um, even though I think, you know, in, in practice we had sort of what looked more like a, a, you know, big sister relationship. But she, I mean, she was very nurturing and I was so dependent on her and I emulated her so much and it became a, um, you know, I, I think it became unhealthy, but only, I mean, unhealthy in the way that like we sometimes get into those enmeshed relationships when we're young, when we're teenagers or in our early twenties. Um, and that's what it was. That was, what it was for me. Um, and I did, I did, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on with my mom at that time. My mom wasn't doing well and I relied on Cal, um, a, a great deal during that, during that period, probably too much. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like she was a big mother figure for you, which was good. I think you needed that <clears throat> at that point. Oh, I'm really grateful to her. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I'm a firm yeah. believer that things come when we need them. Um, there were two big emotional things, that, and I'm a big believer also in uh, emotions driving weight and illness. And there was your mom relationship with your mom, and then there was also another incident. And that was... The, the a neighbor, neighbor, when you were a child, child touched you in the wrong way. way. And that stranger that relationship with your mom as well. well talk a little talk bit about little that. Bit. Yeah, so there was this person in um, in our lives who I've, I've made anonymous really in the book um, simply because, uh, you know, I know his children, I know his family, and I, I don't want to um, – I, I just didn't want to – I just felt – better about making it anonymous, even though I knew it would sort of make a, a slightly muddier narrative. Um, but yeah, I was a family friend and um, he was, yeah, he was, he was sexually inappropriate with me and he grabbed me a couple times when I was younger, starting when I was eight. And then he just behaved in like an overtly sexual way with me and uh, it, it, it was traumatic. It was traumatic. I mean, I, I knew, and I, I state this very clearly, and I always talk about it this way, that it was not the same thing as like, you know, getting raped, like many women, like many women have to suffer through. But it was, it was nevertheless, you know, being sexualized as a child and, and living, um, in the presence of that person quite a bit growing up, um, and, and dealing with that dynamic. And it just, it was just terrible, and certainly, I think that got in the way of of quite 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 a lot of things in my life. Definitely, definitely played a role in the whole like dating thing and the discomfort with intimacy. Um, and absolutely, it fed into my relationship with food and my body because I I do certainly recognize, and I recognized this long before I I really got to came to grips with this whole thing that I was eating partially to try and uh, hide inside my body, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was weird because, you know, I also, I developed really early. And so in a way it was just sort of, I was becoming more visible while trying to be invisible. And I I think that's an instinct that a lot of people who go through this have. Yeah. Yeah. And you ended up, I think it was one summer day you're on the porch you're sitting with your mom and you end up telling her and she really and and tell us what happened I don't want to tell the story but no you tell okay you yeah um I I didn't I, I didn't really get up the courage to tell my mom because I was afraid of how it would affect her I was afraid that it would um set her off or or start her drinking again or somehow ruin her life in in a way because it felt like every time it felt like I had such a direct pull on her, you know, behavior. You know, like anytime, anytime I said something, I, I I could be easily, you know, used as a catalyst for something terrible to happen with her. And I was so afraid all the time for her. Um, but I had to. Um, I had, and and, you know, frankly, I wouldn't have done it had she not asked. She she asked me in the end. Um, if this person had ever touched me inappropriately and it it floored me it absolutely floored me and i i had to tell her yes and um we we didn't you know as i expected she was really sort of stunned into into silence and i don't think she knew what to say and she said that 
you know, could could she sort of get back to me on it later because she wanted to respond in the right way and she she couldn't do that right then. And I just felt, I felt terrible. I felt like I had just dropped this bomb on her. I wanted to take it back so badly in that moment. You know, as much as I felt the relief, much more than that, I felt like I had just just dropped a bomb, like I said. And and I really did. And, you know, the the lesson I've learned many times over over and over again is that, you know, telling the truth is, is the right thing to do, I think, but um there are consequences to it. And th- there were consequences to me telling telling the truth about this. Um, yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Did she? It just didn't seem like she acknowledged you. You did she ever did she come out and do that later on? Later? Yeah, she she did at certain points. But she'd take it back. You know what I mean? I mean, she she would like one time she did actually come to therapy with me and she apologized and she really was she she was so sincere and it felt like oh my god okay we've done it and then other times. Like it would come up, and she would just snap at me and say, "Like, oh, you love to rub that in my face, don't you? You know." And and it would, it, it was like, it undid the apology. I didn't, I didn't think she was apologetic. I didn't think she was remorseful at all. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it changed on every, any given day. And again, I, I have no idea what it's like to be in her shoes, in in this regard at all. But um, it was definitely not the kind of thing where there was any closure. Yeah. 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 Two two more questions for you, Kelsey. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, one is you mentioned in the book intuitive eating and mindful eating. I think explain the mm-hmm. difference between those, or are those just one and the same? Oh no, um, my pleasure to explain the difference. I know that they sound kind of similar, and they certainly are connected. Um, mindful eating, I don't. I think mindful eating. You know, we have an understanding of what that is. That's eating. For me, that means eating without distraction you know, eating with sort of a deliberate consciousness of, of what I'm doing, you know, in terms of taste, in terms of feeling, and, and, and just sort of sitting with the food in my plate, right? And intuitive eating is sort of a multifaceted approach that I think of as like diet deprogramming. Mindful eating is a part of that. But intuitive eating is really a way of learning how to eat the way that you did when you were a little kid before you had any of those mixed messages about foods being good and bad. I mean, it has, it, it's more about, you know, things like honoring your hunger, right, or being, and your fullness as well, you know, acknowledging emerging emerging fullness, and there's elements like uh, body respect, which is, you know, essentially body positivity, you know, just, just a radical acceptance of your body at its current state, which I think is crucial if you're going to learn to, to eat without, you know, restriction and judgment, um, and then there are yeah like things like mindful eating which is which just gives you so much information about your relationship with food. I mean, I always know when I'm eating mindfully, if I'm like eating something kind of fast or in a stressed out way, um then I know that, you know, it gives me sort of a a clue that I'm I'm behaving in a, you know, not totally neutral or normal way with this food and and maybe I should engage with that and figure out what's going on. And I had to do that with a number of foods that were on my sort of bad foods list from all those years of dieting. And, you know, I had to sort of relearn how to eat carbohydrates or even just potatoes, you know, or and, and really just break down my own judgments around food. And and that's really what it is, is, is getting food back to food, and which is something to be, you know, in, enjoyed and something to fuel you. And you're supposed to, 
you know, I think eating is about satisfying your desire as much as it is satisfying your physical needs. Um, yeah, so that's that's really what intuitive eating is about. And it sounds really sort of, you know, almost meditative and like kind of almost fake, but it's not. It's like incredibly common sense. Yeah, I think it's it's good. It, it makes a ton of sense because a lot of people don't have a good relationship with food, and that's one of the things. Just reading your book, it kind of confirmed to me that, that as you grow up with these different habits as a child, that, that when you don't have that good relationship with food, then the outcome is being obese and overeating and not really liking your body. So it makes a ton of sense to me. Um, you said this earlier in the book, but I wanted to end the, the interview on this and what it actually mm-hmm. means to you now, because it seems like from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, there was a totally, total, complete 360 from your emotions and where you were. Like you were just starting to really sort everything out and thin everything out, and you were getting really even keel on your emotions. But Teresa says something to you, and I just wanted to get your insight on where you are mm-hmm. with this now. Teresa's statement says, no one, Teresa was your nutritionist, and she said, no one is broken. I've never known anyone who was broken. How true is that for you now? Oh, my God. I think about it so often because it is so easy to believe that. It's so easy to believe that we are the worst, that we're the weirdest, that we're the most broken, that we're just, like, broken beyond repair. And we hear that in so many ways. Um and 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 it, we it, there's so many ways to sort of confirm that belief about yourself, and to have somebody who I trusted really teach me that, and and say that to me, in such a straightforward, no nonsense way, made me think like, oh my God, this is, this is for this is real. That may, maybe she's right, and to just open your mind to the possibility that you're okay, and that there's not actually anything wrong with you, or you're, you know, at the very least, you're not the problem. I mean, that's sort of that's sort of the beginning of everything. That's sort of the beginning of solving any problem that you have in your life. I think it's just, it's just the acceptance that it's, you know, there are problems, there are difficulties in life, but you are not the broken thing. Yeah, it seems like in the book, like you were always, as I got it when I read the book, it seems like you were always waiting to be fixed. Like this next diet will fix me. This next thing will fix me. If I do this, it'll fix me. And then when I I read that statement, I was like, wow, (laughs) because she she hit the nail on the head that you didn't need to be fixed, that you were whole as you as you were. So that was a, a pretty good statement. And I want to get your thoughts on that, because I know from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you made, like I said, that complete 360 in your emotional. You kind of took that um, emotional journey that most people don't normally take. So um, your book was good. I mean, it popped up in my Amazon as one of the things that I should read. And I'm like, why are they suggesting <laughs> <laughs> I read this, and I'm so glad that I did decide to to read it because, like I said, Kelsey, I'm very big on emotions, and it seems like that was your undertone throughout the whole book that you were really trying to sort out your emotions, and then yeah. later on, that's the thing that made you really, really yeah. successful. The book is available on Amazon. It popped up in my feed, and I'm sure it is available in on all the other uh, media outlets where you purchase books. Um, mm-hmm. What's your website, Kelsey? 
Um, well, my, my column on refinery29.com is called The Anti-Diet Project, um, and that runs every Monday. Um, my website is KelseyMiller.com, K-E-L-S-E-Y. Oh, KelseyMiller.com. Yeah. Yep. I need to put that in the uh, the show notes. And are you planning on writing anything else? Anything else? Oh, in, yeah. In, yeah, in the works? I'm working, percolating on the next book idea right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you back on. I like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I'm just I'm not just saying that because the book was a perfect the perfect mix to me of education and what people go through because me being skinny my whole life and only dealing with a, you know that rapid weight gain that I had versus someone who has been who'd been dealing with this their whole life, um you really don't know and I think a lot of times what we tend to do as people who are fit, are skinny, we tend to look at people who are not and then pass all these judgments when we don't know what they're going through emotionally. So it was really entertaining that you made it, you joked a little bit in here, but was also serious. So it wasn't kind of one of those books where you're like, you're crying or anything like that. You kind of poked fun at, at, at a lot of things, but there was some really serious stuff in here as well. So I, like I said, I really enjoyed the book, and um, I'll keep my eyes out open for the uh, next one. And thank you so much for being on. Thank you. This is a real treat. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. You have a good night. I know it's cold in New York. Wish you were here in South Florida. but Oh, in- <laughs> I do. I do. All right. I'm going to go bundle up. Thank you so much. Have a great night. All right. Thank you, Kelsey. You too. Bye-bye. Good night. This book is is good, and uh, I would definitely um, recommend this to be on your reading list. Like I said, it's very educational. We didn't really get into a lot of the things um, that Kelsey went through, but we we touched the the major points. But there are some other little tidbits in here that you might want to um, get the book for. I know sometimes we listen to the interview, but we never go and get the book, and it's always good to get the book and get the whole story. Uh, Wednesday, we have another show lined up. should be a great show. We're actually going to be talking to Dr. Laurie Neil Steelsmith. almost said Neil Smith, but Dr. Laurie Steelsmith, and we'll be talking about her book, Great Sex Naturally. And um, one of the topics will be just talking about dark chocolate, the benefits of dark chocolate to your your sex life and your overall health. And we'll be talking uh, Wednesday, same fat time, same fat channel. Thank you for listening tonight. Peace and love, y'all. Good night.